The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Volume 4, The Medieval World, Episode 9, The Byzantine Empire, Part 4. By the death of Emperor John Simiscus in 976, the Byzantine Empire was in a strong position. The imperial throne passed to the eldest son of the former emperor, Romanos II, whose name was Basil. At the time, Basil may have only been around the age of 18, and so his uncle, called Basil Lecapinos, acted as the chief minister, which was a role he had held for almost 30 years in any case. Basil Lecapinos is therefore likely to have been a eunuch, as the Byzantines understood in the same way that we know that the Han Chinese had done many centuries before, that a castrated male is not able to make a dynastic overthrow of the existing dynasty, and it would be prudent to prevent somebody so close to the ruling elite to be able to produce potential male heirs. Basil had spent his childhood watching military leaders rule the Byzantine Empire, such as John Simiscus before him and Nikephoros Phokas before him. Basil grew up to become quite a military-minded young man himself with no great desire for education or relationships. Basil Lecapinos would support the young emperor initially, but as the young emperor Basil wanted to make more decisions for himself, he found that his great uncle was stubbornly keeping the power for himself. And so the tension between the two would reach breaking point. The young Basil had his uncle arrested as a traitor to the empire on the grounds of plotting to overthrow him. Basil Lecapinos was stripped of his lands and exiled. Now the young emperor could rule on his own terms. And this was the age of Basil II, retrospectively referred to as Basil the Bulgar Slayer. Basil the Bulgar Slayer Basil was a good example of a military-minded medieval ruler. He had no regard for his aesthetic image and believed that victories on the battlefield were much more awe-inspiring. His duty as a dedicated Christian was to God. He is described as being 
short-tempered. Basil was aware of the raids and skirmishes along the Byzantines' northern frontiers in Europe by the Bulgarians, and so he took to the battlefield to besiege the Bulgarian city of Serdica, which we recognise today as the modern Bulgarian capital city of Sofia. However, the siege failed, and the prominent Bulgarian military leader Samuel pursued Basil. Basil barely escaped with his life. Basil knew that he would need to toughen up in order to gain success. We learned in the previous episode that Basil had a younger brother called Constantine, but he also had a younger sister called Anna Porfirojenita. Basil would oversee Anna's marriage to the Grand Prince of Kiev, Vladimir the Great, and this would enable Basil to have a diplomatic relationship with the Rausch and enjoy their military support. Basil also made reforms and felt little need to show obsequiousness towards the nobles, raising taxes against them to enable him to raise enough wealth to gather a personal army together from the population of the empire. Basil would campaign in Syrian lands with his new army and it was likely to be here that he honed his craft and began to earn his reputation for being a capable military leader, learning that hasty decisions were not always the best decisions, and that by controlling his temper, he could learn to outwit his opponents. In the wake of the fall from power of the Abbasid Caliphate in the Middle East, other Islamic dynasties such as the Fatimids of North Africa grew ever more powerful, and Basil was able to prevent any Anatolian ambitions of the Fatimids who had moved into the lands of the Levant. The original rulers of the Bulgarians were referred to as Khans, which was the typical Turkic title for rulers since the original Bulgars found their ancestry in the Turkic steppe lands. Now the Bulgarian emperors would stylize themselves as Tsars, to give them an equivalent standing to the Byzantine emperors, with the word Tsar being the Slavic version of the Latin word Caesar. In 997, the Bulgarian military leader who had chased Basil out of Bulgaria had now become the Bulgarian Tsar, and so was declared Tsar Samuel of Bulgaria. Basil was now older and wiser, and was ready to take his revenge on Samuel. For an extended period, both Samuel and Basil continued to attack each other throughout the Balkan territories, which were the borderlands of the two empires. The culmination of Samuel and Basil's war against each other was at the Battle of Clydion in 1014, where Basil outmaneuvered Samuel's army. Basil would have likely understood the value of not allowing your army to be surrounded. Roman legend would always have the memory of Crassus's army being surrounded and slaughtered by the Parthians of Persia over a thousand years previous. On this occasion, it would be Basil who surrounded Samuel's army, and in the stuff of medieval legend, it is reported that Basil captured thousands of Bulgarian soldiers, blinding each one and leaving one in 100 men 
the sight of just one eye so that they could lead the blind army home to tell the horrors of battling against Basil's Byzantines. Tsar Samuel is reported to have died of a heart attack in the aftermath and following these horrors. From this point on, it would only be a matter of time before Basil would consume Bulgaria into the Byzantine Empire and this legendary medieval story would lead to Emperor Basil being remembered to history as Basil the Bulgar Slayer. Despite this moniker, Basil was diplomatically fair to the Bulgarian population, understanding that national subjects were more obedient when treated respectfully. This is not always popular with noble families back home though, who like to see the wealth of conquered nations distributed among the rich and powerful. But Basil cared very little for the aristocracy, and upon his own eventual passing in 1025, he would request burial in a humble tomb without lavish ceremony or unnecessary expense. The Great Schism In the year 1043, a man called Mikhail Kirillarius became the new patriarch of Constantinople. Since the iconoclastic attitudes of the Byzantine emperors of the Isaurian dynasty of the 8th century, the attitudes of both the Patriarchates of Rome and Constantinople clashed with each other over who the supreme Patriarch of the Christian Church truly was, with Rome believing itself to be the spiritual home of the Roman Christian Church and Constantinople believing itself to be the secular capital of the Christian Roman Empire. The two patriarchates coexisted, but with a strained relationship throughout the 9th and 10th centuries. Byzantine territories on the Italian peninsula had been reduced to some small areas in the far south since the glorious reclamation of vast lands by Justinian and Belisarius in the 6th century. Since that time, the Lombards had been displaced by Charlemagne and the Franks, which ultimately led to the lands not under the control of the Pope in Rome being under the control of the Holy Roman Empire. Although it is not always clear how healthy the relationship between the Pope and the Holy Roman Empire was as the individuals who filled the roles came and went over the years, the Byzantines were somewhat isolated in the south and possibly exposed to the influences of the north as well. The Byzantine lands of southern Italy came under attack from Norman seafarers during the 11th century and began to replace the Byzantine bishops with bishops loyal to Rome, practising conventions common with the traditions of the West, such as the liturgy and the use of unleavened bread. Byzantine bishops only used bread made using leavening agents that makes the bread rise when baked. This is specifically in line with the practice of celebrating the Holy Communion, often referred to by its name of Greek origin, the Eucharist. Michael Kerilarius, as the Patriarch of Constantinople, wrote to these new Latin bishops instated by the Normans and denounced them for their incorrect practices. He even tried to close all of the Latin churches in Constantinople to further attempt to stamp Greek Christian traditions as the exclusive Christian church of the Byzantines. 
the papacy during the 1040s was having its own problems with multiple claimants trying to claim the title of Pope. The Holy Roman Emperor Henry III would step in to instate a new Pope who would take charge of the Patriarchate of Rome as Leo IX in the year 1049. Leo would react to the fact that Mikhail had closed all of the Latin churches of Constantinople by sending a papal bull to Mikhail, excommunicating him from the Christian church. Mikhail responded by doing the same thing to Leo. This would signify the permanent split of the Roman Catholic Church from the Eastern Orthodox Church. We call this the Great Schism. The Seljuk Turks A new threat to the lands of the Middle East had emerged when the Seljuk Turks took control of the Abbasid Caliphate from the Buyid dynasty, who had controlled it from their centre in Baghdad for approximately the last century. During the 1050s, the Seljuks took control of the area around the city of Mosul, bringing them to the borders of Byzantine Anatolia. Diplomatic relations between the Byzantines and the Seljuks opened up, but in general there was a deep distrust of each other, both realising that the other had interests in dominating the same territories in and around Armenia. The successors to Basil the Bulgar Slayer had not served the empire well and the Byzantines had gone from a position of strength to a position where the military prowess of the empire could be questioned due to the inabilities of Basil's successors by comparison. When the Seljuks were flexing their muscles on the borderlands of the Byzantine Empire, a new emperor came to rule as Romanos IV, and he would gather an army in preparation to make the first move against the Seljuks while they were having issues with the Fatimid Empire further south. While the Seljuks believed that they had a peace agreement with the Byzantines, the Byzantines went to Armenia to regain their influence, and the Seljuks would be unable to ignore this. The resulting Battle of Manzikert in 1071 was a key historical battle. The Byzantines and the Seljuks had met in battle since over 20 years before, but not on this sort of scale, and not with so much at stake. The Seljuk Sultan, Alp Arslan, defeated and captured the Byzantine Emperor, Romanos IV, and this opened the floodgates for Turkic peoples to start flooding into Anatolia and taking the lands. Romanos was released, but his shame meant that he would be blinded and sent to a monastery to die. The Seljuks created a new sultanate that would dominate the lands of Anatolia and remove Roman dominance of the peninsula after over 1100 years since the time of Marius and Sulla of the Roman Republic. To rub salt into the Byzantine wounds, the new sultanate was referred to as the Rum Sultanate, directly referencing the local name Rome, as the Byzantines considered themselves to still be the Romans. Although the people of Anatolia were Greek speakers and although the Byzantines played an important and significant part in Anatolian politics for some time afterwards, they would never dominate the peninsula again. 
Anatolia started to slowly become Turkified from this point, resulting in the modern country of Turkey existing there today. The Byzantines had been powerless during this distraction from preventing the Normans from destroying the last remaining Byzantine outposts in southern Italy. The Byzantine Empire had suffered a new dramatic decrease in its territory. The Komneni Dynasty The Byzantine Empire was about to collapse. Many lands and cities of Anatolia had fallen and refugees flooded westwards to a fragile empire that was on the brink of bankruptcy due to the ineptness of the imperial rulers who had lost control of the value of the coinage. A dramatic intervention was needed to save the empire. It came in the form of a man called Alexios Komnenos, whose grandfather had briefly been the Byzantine emperor shortly after the Great Schism in the 1050s. Alexios usurped the throne in 1081 in a desperate attempt to rescue the situation in the Byzantine Empire. Immediately, the Normans crossed the Adriatic Sea and attacked the Balkan territory of the Byzantines on the premise of Alexios's usurpation being illegal. The Normans scored a victory at Dyrrhachium, the same location where Pompey scored a victory over Julius Caesar before Pompey fled to Egypt in the 1st century BCE. The Norman presence in the Balkans was short-lived as they would need to return to Italy to deal with affairs involving the Holy Roman Empire and the papacy. This enabled Alexios to recover those lost territories before heading east to deal with the Pechenegh Turkic unrest in eastern Thrace, this time from the north as opposed to the east, which was the direction from which the Seljuk Turks had approached from. The victory over the Pechenegh Turks may have given Alexios a bit more confidence, but he still knew that the threat of the Seljuks was too much since the collapse of the Byzantine army at Manzikert, so he would need to come up with a different plan. Alexios swallowed his Byzantine pride and sent an embassy to Rome to appeal to the Pope for help to reclaim lost Byzantine territories in Anatolia and more importantly, their Christian churches. The Pope at the time was Pope Urban II, a Frenchman on the cusp of immortality based on his actions following this appeal. Pope Urban likely saw an opportunity to show the superiority of the Roman Catholic Church, also known as the Latin Church, and appealed to these followers of the Latin Church to raise an army to defend and reclaim Christian churches lost to the Seljuk Turks. Many would answer the call with the attraction of Oriental wealth and the favour of God. And this was because Pope Urban turned the idea of rescuing the Byzantines into a holy war against Islamic expansion. This may have been quite overwhelming for Alexios, as he may have been pleased that Pope Urban had rallied so much support, but he also feared the power of the Latin Church 
also being a threat to Byzantine interests. Alexios would have to raise money from a depleted economy, and this was done by raising taxes and selling off church property. The armies of the Latin church are referred to in history as the Crusaders, and it was possibly thanks to the fact that the Crusaders' ambitions stretched beyond helping the Byzantines and actually conquering Muslim territories beyond the Byzantine realm that prevented Crusaders from attempting to annex Byzantine territories for themselves. When the Crusaders captured the city of Antioch, they set up their own Crusader state there rather than give the city back to the Byzantines. Alexios may have just been pleased that he had negotiated his empire away from the brink of collapse, and this would be known as the beginning of the Comnenian Restoration. The ambitions of the Crusaders allowed Alexios to stabilise his vulnerable economy. The Solidus, which was a coin that was the legacy of the later Roman Empire, was removed from circulation and replaced by the Ipapiran, which was a recycled coin using all of the debased Solidus coins that could be collected together. This would enable the empire to start the distribution of coins from a fresh beginning and rendering any Solidus genuine or tampered with as illegal coinage in any case. On reflection, Alexios was a good emperor and maybe things could have turned out a lot worse if luck wasn't on his side. But if it was, then it doesn't matter. His legacy is still positive. A lot of what we know about Alexios is to be found in a text called the Alexiad, which was written by his very own daughter, Anna Komnena. She was a highly educated and powerful woman and her contributions to history literature are considerable. Anna would even plot to overthrow his brother and Alexios's son and successor who ruled as John II from the rule of the Byzantine Empire. She failed to do this when John uncovered the plot and stripped her of her wealth before going on to reform the Byzantine army and recovering some of the footholds that it had lost before the Comnenian restoration. He would consolidate what Anatolian possessions he did have left following the establishment of the Rum Sultanate. Alexios selling off the lands of the church was part of a process during this period where more and more land was being privately owned in a decentralisation of the state. So the Byzantine army was constructed of manpower being offered by the landowners in a feudal style setup, which was a popular setup during the Middle Ages with many different nations of the world. Although this seemed to produce results in the short term, there would definitely be longer term consequences as the local rulers would be more concerned over their own wealth to be bothered about supporting Constantinople. Before all of this though, the Comnenian restoration saw an upward turn of success for the Byzantines that carried them through most of the 12th century. John II's son ruled the empire as Manuel and he would defeat the Hungarians in battle, 
making them a vassal state, and this may represent a time of relative Roman stability in the Balkans, the likes of which that had not been known since before the invasions of the Goths, back in the 4th century. He was also able to go toe-to-toe with the Rum Sultanate of Anatolia, which was always the most powerful threat of all, until the fateful Battle of Miriokephalon in 1176, which put paid to any Byzantine ambitions of reclaiming Anatolia, and weakened their army enough that they would not be able to make any further significant land force contributions towards the Crusades. The restoration period of the Komnenians had run its course. The Fourth Crusade After the death of Emperor Manuel, there was more dispute about the succession as the empire's fragility started to resurface and the typical battles for the throne took place. In the meantime, the Pope Innocent III had made another call to arms for a crusade to the Holy Land. The belligerents gathered at the city of Venice, which at the time was a republic in its own right, with an area of influence. However, the Fourth Crusade turned into a rogue crusade when the Venetians used the armies to raid and destroy the Croatian city of Zadar for its wealth, with Zadar itself a Christian city. This led to a condemnation and excommunication of the Crusaders by the Pope himself. Intriguing events took place with the son of the deposed Byzantine Emperor Isaac II. The son was called Alexios Angelos and he pledged Byzantine allegiance to the rogue Crusaders by pledging Byzantine money and resources should they be able to overthrow the current Byzantine Emperor, Alexios III, and instate Alexios Angelos in his place. Alexios III fled as soon as the Crusaders reached Constantinople, but Alexios Angelos had overpromised to the Crusaders, finding that the wealth and resources promised just did not exist in the troubled city. The Crusaders were furious, and the population of Constantinople stood up against them. Alexios Angelos became Alexios IV of the Byzantine Empire until he was deposed and killed by Alexios Dukas at the tender age of 21. Now with the possibility of the Eastern Orthodox Church being potentially forced into submission to the Pope in Rome, suddenly Pope Innocent III was interested again and he rescinded his excommunication of the Crusaders on the basis that it was the Venetians who put them up to attacking the Christian city of Zadar. Alexios Dukas ruled the Byzantine Empire as Alexios V and supported the resistance of Constantinople against the Crusaders. The leader of the Crusader offensive was a man called Baldwin, who was the count of both Flanders and Hainaut, both counties of the modern Low Countries of Northwest Continental Europe. He would oversee the Crusader sacking of Constantinople in the year 1204, and this marked the end of the Byzantine Empire, as the Byzantine nobles fled from the city and Baldwin became the first emperor of a new 
Latin Empire with its capital city at Constantinople. Shockwaves would travel throughout Christendom as the Orthodox churches could not believe the audacity of the Crusaders. How could they dare consider themselves to be Crusaders when they are destroying Christian cities? The Byzantines were effectively in exile. Three rump states were established in remnants. They were Epirus, Trebizond and the most significant was based around the city of Nicaea and referred to by historians as the Nicene Empire. The Byzantines in Nicaea would sign a peace treaty with the Latin Empire in 1214 but there were still battles and skirmishes between the two entities. The Byzantine despotate of Epirus expanded to gather more lands before it would come under Bulgarian control and Trebizond came under the control of the westward expanding Mongols who were also subjugating the Seljuk Sultanate of Rum. So by the middle of the 13th century the Nicene Empire was now all that was left of the Byzantine Empire. The behaviour of the Crusaders that sacked and took control of Constantinople at the beginning of the century was instigated by the Venetians who were enjoying having the freedom of the Bosphorus Strait in order to bolster their maritime trading opportunities. Thanks to the successes of the Crusades in the eastern Mediterranean, the Venetians were enjoying many such opportunities, but they were opposed by another Western European Mediterranean Republic based at the city of Genoa, who were the trading rivals of the Venetians. Such was the tension between the two republics that it would erupt into military conflict. This presented a great opportunity for the Byzantines, who had been taking advantage of the lack of strength of their immediate neighbours and were now eyeing up the city of Constantinople. And so by forming a pact with the Genoese, they could pose a real threat to the Latin Empire and the Venetians. An important victory in the Balkans for the Byzantines of Nicaea weakened the military resources of the Latin Empire and in 1261 the Byzantines seized an opportunity to compromise the Golden Gate of Constantinople and reclaim their core city and thereby eliminating the Latin Empire of Constantinople. The man behind the success was the Nicaean co-ruler Mikhail Palaiologos who ruled the restored Byzantine Empire as Mihail VIII, and this would mark the beginning of the Palaiologos dynasty. The Palaiologos dynasty Mihail VIII was a brave and admirable emperor who campaigned tirelessly against the Latins for most of his reign, and although this was necessary to prevent a counter-attack on Constantinople, it would put a strain on the financial resources of the Byzantine Empire. Mikhail did extend the influence of the Byzantines though, and the ambitions of the Latins were curbed. So from the perspective of Byzantine history, Mikhail's reign was a high point. Mikhail died in 1282 at the age of 59, and he would be succeeded 
by his son Andronicus, who ruled as Andronicus II. Although the Latins had been put on the back foot, a new threat would emerge in Anatolia in the shape of the Ottomans, led by their chieftain, Osman Ghazi. The Ottomans represented the hub of a Turkic revival within the Sultanate of Rum, which had been subjugated by the Mongols, but now factions in the west of the Sultanate had managed to wriggle free from Mongol control. Now Osman had his own ambitions and recognised the vulnerability of the exhausted Byzantines. A victory for the Ottomans at the Battle of Bathyas in 1302 would see the beginnings of the loss of those Anatolian territories that the Byzantines had survived on during their exile from Constantinople as the Nikian Empire. This may have been in part due to the policies of Andronicus who had attempted to reduce the size of the Byzantine military in an attempt to protect the economy of the empire. He would also debase the Ipapiron in an attempt to generate more money. Either way, the citizens would suffer, because if they were not paying more taxes, then the value of goods would increase. Such were the pressures being faced by the Byzantines that sacrifices would need to be made somewhere along the line in order to prevent revolt from within and attack from outside. The middle of the 14th century would see the Byzantines suffer further misfortunes. Political differences and financial pressures often led to civil wars and the empire was hit by cases of bubonic plague and earthquakes. The rival factions of the Byzantine Empire would turn to their neighbouring nations for support in their civil conflicts and a rival to the Paleologos dynasty called John Cantacuzenos would turn to the Ottomans. The Ottomans obliged and assisted John in becoming the Byzantine Emperor ruling as John VI. However, the Ottomans would see this as a great opportunity to claim some territory on the European side of the Dardanelles as their own, which was not part of the original plan. Despite the alarm of all of the European nations of Southeast Europe now realising the very real expansionist ambitions of the Ottomans in Europe, they could not prevent the Ottoman Sultan Murad I from taking Byzantine territory in Europe and therefore cutting the Byzantines off from the Bulgarians and the Serbs by occupying Thrace and reducing the Byzantine Empire to a small area around the city of Constantinople. The Ottomans were now threatening all of the Christian realms of the Balkan Peninsula and attempting to convert the children of their Christian subjects to a life of military subservience to Islam and the Ottoman Sultan. The Byzantines themselves had absolutely no ability to expand beyond Constantinople now and had to settle for a diplomatic relationship with the Ottomans who exercised their superiority over the Byzantines throughout the remainder of the 14th century. The only time when the Byzantines would be able to take the small positive steps that they did take was when the Ottomans were distracted either by conflicts on their own imperial fronts or by civil conflicts from within.
When the aggressive Murad II became the Ottoman Sultan, he would become tired of Byzantine Emperor Manuel II's attempts to incite rebellion from within the Ottoman Empire, and so he decided that he would like to crush the Byzantines and take the city of Constantinople once and for all in 1422. The siege of the city may have been successful with the Ottomans now in possession of cannons that may be useful in breaching the city walls. It would once again be internal conflict within the Ottoman Empire that prevented the siege from continuing, and so the siege was lifted and Constantinople survived. The Byzantines themselves had also possessed cannons, so the technological position of the Byzantines and the Ottomans was not a mismatch. The location of Constantinople meant that for many centuries the city was able to defend itself effectively against attack from the sea by the use of the Greek fire for which Constantinople is fondly remembered, with the Greek fire being the highly flammable fluid that would be propelled towards any unfortunate wooden sea vessels that dared to venture too close. Constantinople could have fallen much earlier to the Ottomans had it not been for the fact that there were bigger problems to deal with for the Ottomans and the fact that Constantinople was generally getting weaker and weaker in any case. The way of life in the villages inside the Constantinople walls was becoming very basic indeed and the supply of gunpowder and naphtha that would be the fuel of the cannons and of the Greek fire, was not reaching Constantinople in any kind of abundance. With Constantinople no longer having any international clout as it had done in centuries gone by. The decline of the Byzantines and Constantinople was long and drawn out, almost like watching the ultimate fate of a living insect trapped in a spider's web, waiting for the spider to return when it was ready to put the insect out of its misery. The Byzantine Emperor John VIII would travel to the lands of northern Italy with the religious patriarch of Constantinople in an attempt to bring the Greek and Latin churches closer together in the hopes of enticing a crusade against the Ottomans but the Eastern Churches found it difficult to accept the terms of the Latin Church. The Latin Church also had its own internal problems to deal with, so the Byzantine plight was really not particularly interesting. Europe had given up on Constantinople. Thank you very much for listening to this long story of the Byzantine Empire. Um, Originally, I thought to myself, well, should we set two episodes aside for the chronological story of the Byzantines? And it just wasn't, it just wasn't correct to do that. It it really did need to be expanded on because there were so many centuries uh, of activity and, and so much that was fundamentally important to the development of the medieval world uh, to Christendom, um, it also played its part in the Crusades, and it, it was very interesting to see how uh, 
the Eastern Roman Empire became the Byzantine uh, state, the medieval Byzantine state. So um, such a lot to discuss and uh, such a lot that's relevant to the story of the the change, the changing face of, of Europe and Eurasia. Um, so I hope you enjoyed it and uh, let's, uh, let's not forget, we haven't really completed the story, have we? So if you want to know what happens next, um, you'll have to wait till episode 12 when we wrap up um, the ultimate conflict between the Byzantines and the Ottomans. So we, we, um, we join the two stories together, the one that we left in episode five and now the one that we leave behind in episode nine. Uh, why have we got to wait till episode 12? It's because we're going to take a closer look at a couple of the conflicts uh, that the Byzantines had, uh, namely um, uh, Clydean, um, it, which is going to be very interesting. Next week, we're going to be looking at the, the clash between uh, the Bulgars and uh, the Byzantines uh, in the Clydean Pass um, and also the subsequent um, uh, Battle of Stromitsa. And um, then uh, the following week, we're going to be looking at the Battle of Manzikert, which is probably one of the most important, most influential medieval battles, uh, or the most consequential medieval battles um, that we're going to be covering um, in this entire um, volume four. So um, none of these episodes to be missed. We're going to learn a great deal about the emergence and how how. Bulgaria and Hungary started to uh, sort of form and, um, you know, certainly how, um, you know, the modern states of Turkey um, were like the seeds were planted for that to, to happen. And so, so it's a lot of um, consequential stuff is going to be covered in the next three episodes. So looking forward to that. The Ancient World Cup. So... Back to the ancient World Cup then, and uh, the first update for the new year. So it's 2022 now, first episode of 2022, and the first uh, ancient World Cup update. This week we were voting on Group H, um, which uh, contained the Mitanni, the Han Dynasty of China, uh, the Zhou Dynasty of China, and the Teotihuacanos. Um, of the city of Teotihuacan near Mexico City. Um, so uh, let's see the results and which two of those teams you have voted for to progress into the knockout stages later in the year. And uh, in first place in the group, uh, with 40% of the vote, and the winners of the group are the Teotihuacanos. So um, they have made it through... Um, I believe um, if I let's just take another look. Are they the first? No, we've got the Mochi. The Mochi of, of, of the Americas have made it through, and I think they're only the second team of the Americas uh, to have been put up for the vote so far. Um, certainly next week we will definitely be having another one. So. Uh, I think both of the ancient Americas teams that we've had so far have made it through to the next round. Um, so they won the group in second place with 37% of the vote um, were the Han Dynasty of China. Um, 
So um, the Mitani, um, the Mitani and Joe China uh, have been unfortunately have been knocked out at this stage. The Mitani got twenty percent of the vote, and uh, the Joe Chinese uh, only got three percent of the vote. So um, they're both out of the competition. Even though the Joe dynasty of China is quite a strange one, isn't it, with the Joe? Um, even though the Joe dynasty of China are the longest lasting or longest reigning dynasty of China um, there's just absolutely no regard for them really as a, as a, a dynasty because um, they were influenced by everyone else basically in the Chinese land so interesting that they got knocked out um, Han China of course are much more influential the Han dynasty and uh, certainly the classical age of China so Will they be the Chinese team that makes it furthest? Uh, time will tell. But anyway, that's the end of Group H. Um, next week, Group I. This is an interesting little group. Uh, we've got the Britons, who were the um, sort of the original occupants of um, of Britannia um, before the Romans arrived. Um, they mixed with the Romans before the. Um, before the the visits of the Anglo-Saxons. The Zapotecs, who we covered, um, were a very important part of the the cultural mix of uh, Mesoamerica. Um, So they're our American team for next week. We've got the Elamites, the less spoken about um, um, nation, if you like. Uh, We could say a nation of... Um, the Middle East um, from back in ancient times they they were always there but um, because we haven't interpreted their script we probably don't know enough about them and uh, finally in this group we've got the Berbers the indigenous peoples of North Africa who once again were like a um, they were like a, a, a constant presence despite all of the comings and goings of various different imperial powers that that ventured into North Africa and, and kingdoms. Uh, the Berbers were always there and were always um, often used as mercenaries for the various armies. So uh, interesting group there. Group I, the Britons, the Zapotecs, the Elamites and the Berbers. Um, voting once again will start from tomorrow. Listener messages and reviews. So it was somewhat quiet this week for the listener messages, and very likely because it was Christmas week and everyone was far too busy doing more important things than uh, thinking about writing messages to the History of the World podcast. Um, however, um, yeah, a couple of you was writing in, and I know that um, one of our listeners has submitted a question on the discussion forum as well, which I haven't got around to answering just yet. Uh, regarding Christmas crackers um, and whether we use them. So it was was written by an American uh, listener, I believe from America, if I'm not mistaken. I apologise if I've got that incorrect. But um, a listener in America wrote in saying about Christmas crackers, um, which um, traditionally, yes, um, in Britain, certainly, we do do pull crackers at the table um, and they will contain a little gift and uh, and a joke 
uh, on a piece of paper that we all read out over the dinner table. Um, I'm not quite sure how long that tradition's been going on for, but I'll, I'll, I'll see if I can find out and then respond on the discussion for me. If you know more than me about the history of Christmas crackers, um, then by all means, um, please do go to the discussion forum and let us know. Let us know um, what you know about the history of Christmas crackers and the tradition of Christmas crackers. Um, very interesting. I've never really thought about them before, to be quite honest with you. Just took them for granted. And all our lives, that's all we've done. Christmas, we pull crackers at the at the dinner table. Um, anyway, um, thank you uh, ever so much um, to everyone who has written in. We have we have had a rev- a couple of reviews. We had a four star review from BVFGJN who's put bravo. But please reconsider the type of music and the piercing nature of it. Um, not the first person to complain about the music. So, um, you know, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Maybe it may, I'll have to sack the band that done Volume 4's music. Perhaps I don't know. if it, I, don't, I assume if that's what he's referring to. So, um, uh, Mapache77777, uh, uh, who, who, like the previous reviewer, also comes from the United States of America, has put wonderful podcast, very binge-worthy, history made interesting and accessible, Jake. Uh, so thank you. Thank you very much for those wonderful reviews. Um, if you do want to support the podcast, and it's very easy to do so, just go directly to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website, click on the Patreon link and sign up and make a monthly contribution. When you do that, you are automatically inducted into the History of the World podcast Illuminati. You will be granted a special privilege of of being there we also give out rewards i know a number of you have qualified for rewards certainly i must apologize to adam hosier um who qualified for his t-shirt um many months ago and i haven't sent it which is rather unforgivable of me i have got the t-shirt and it will be sent so i apologize but i thought i'd you know the least i could do is is fess up um on the airwaves so uh, there you go, a special fess up for you, Adam, as a, as a way of a penance uh, for my for my slack uh, delivery. So, um, but then also yeah, t-shirts, mugs, um, gift packs, including fridge magnets, uh, key rings. You know, you can you can qualify for all of them by um, cumulative uh, contributions to the history of the world podcast and and. Um, we introduce uh, this week new members to the History of the World podcast Illuminati. Um, Gary Miller, Paula K. Himmeles, um, or Heimless, um, sorry if I've pronounced that incorrectly, Alex, Arn- Alex Arnest, and Alex Jones's neighbours, French. Um, I've, I've tripped over that. Goodness me, this is some name. Alex Jones's neighbours, Fence Fund. Sorry, bad with apostrophes. That's the name of the uh, of one of the Illuminati members. Alex Jones's neighbours, Fence Fund. Sorry, bad with apostrophes. 
Um, you are all now members of the History of the World podcast Illuminati. Thank you ever so much for valuable contributions. They really do make a difference. Um, only today I was buying material on the Holy Roman Empire and uh, what was the other one I bought? Oh, the History of Humans. Um, I, I bought a book zine on the History of Humans, which... Uh, um may come into play for for many various subjects so um so yeah um all of that enables me to to be able to purchase those materials so uh, a great uh, debt of thanks to everyone and uh, particularly um to um Alex Jones's neighbors fence fund sorry bad with apostrophes who's been incredibly generous so uh, thank you ever so much and uh, uh, please look out for your rewards um, and, and the emails offering, offering your rewards. I shall certainly be getting them in the post to wherever you are in the world. So thank you ever so much. Um, I think that's it for this week. Uh, next week, we're going to be looking at the Battle of Clydeon and uh, the subsequent Battle of Stromitsa. Um, where the Byzantines and the Bulgars uh, come face to face. It's a fascinating episode in history and, and some very interesting characters are revealed as well. That um, Some of them are quite fundamental to um, the progress of the 11th century politics of that area of the Balkans. So um, much to look forward to uh, next week. But until then... Thank you ever so, so much for listening. Happy New Year to all of you. I hope you all have a, a wonderful, healthy, COVID-free, prosperous year. And, uh, of course, never forget to be good. The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Please consider making a financial contribution by going to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr. See you next time.